You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Jackie Alamany, congressional investigations reporter here at the Washington Post, and my guest today is the co-chair of the Congressional Ukraine Caucus, Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick. Welcome to Post Live, Congressman. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yesterday, Ukrainian President Zelensky spoke to the UN Security Council and strongly urged them to hold Russia accountable for their actions. What role does the UN have in this conflict, and do you feel like they've fulfilled that role? Uh, they have a huge role in this conflict, and no, I don't feel they've fulfilled their role. Uh, this, this is a level of atrocity and genocide, uh, the likes of which we thought were permanently relegated to the history books after World War II. It's now happening in real time. It's happening before our very eyes. And there should be no tolerance whatsoever for uh, holding back anything that Ukraine is asking for, um, not going the entire way on sanctions and not doing everything to provide a, a safe humanitarian corridor uh, for uh, innocent civilians to escape Ukraine. And also uh, starting immediately uh, a war crimes investigation uh, against Vladimir Putin and holding him accountable. Uh, economic half measures, military appeasement, uh, are, are not in order at all right now. And unfortunately, I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah, well, on this topic of war crimes, President Biden again called Russian President Vladimir Putin a war criminal. What significance you know, does this mean beyond the, the feel-good rhetoric uh, and, and sort of the, just the, the use of the term? Well, I'm glad he's saying it because that's an important first step. Now we have to follow up on it. Um, there has to be an investigation where they gather evidence and evidence is presented to the relevant type tribunal. And that official designation should be made, just like I feel and me and my bipartisan uh, Ukraine co-chair caucus um, colleagues have jointly asked Secretary Blinken to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. I think all of these labels need to be affixed to Vladimir Putin and his regime to make sure that all the consequences follow from that. So it's yes, it's important that the president call him correctly as a war criminal, uh, but now the actions need to follow those words. And as I'm sure you're well aware, the U.S. and the EU are going to be implementing new sanctions against Russia because of these possible war crimes. <clears throat> Does that go far enough? It doesn't. Um, listen, uh, all these sanctions help, but uh, they, they are coming too late and they're too few. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to sanction only 80% of Russian banks when Vladimir Putin controls 100% of the banks. It doesn't make any sense to uh, get, give a carve out of 50% of Russia's GDP, which is energy, when we're um, executing the sanctions regime. Um, these things don't make sense. Um, and you know, I, I understand there's going to be economic blowback on the world, but you know, as the saying goes, pay me now or pay me later. Um, the, the lessons of history and the lessons of the past say and, and, and instruct us that if you don't deal with a problem, the likes of Putin early, it's going to be much more costly down the road, both in terms of lives and economics. And this process that you just laid out of having Putin actually face an international tribunal to be prosecuted for these war crimes uh, and crimes against humanity, have you gotten the sense that this is actually in the works here? <clears throat> Only if we push it, you know, that one of my main jobs, Jacqueline, is, you know, I am the, the lead Ukrainian uh, advocate here in Congress. So we have a lot uh, to, to the credit of my colleagues. Uh, bipartisan uh, support for Ukraine is off the charts. Uh, the the um, 
people on the other side of this issue are few and far between as they should be. Um, but, you know, as far as what we need to do, I think we need to codify a lot of what's being um, issued via executive order, um, you know, through the administration. I, I think that we need to codify the sanctions. We need to uh, tighten the noose on Russia's economy uh, because right now the sanctions have been somewhat effective, but the uh, the ruble is back to its pre-invasion levels right now. So, you know, Putin was prepared for these sanctions, both through the, his use of cryptocurrency. He's got $600 billion in gold reserves that he intentionally stored to ride out sanctions to stabilize his currency. So he was prepared for this. We have to be willing to go all the way on sanctions because the alternative is innocent Ukrainians are going to continue uh, to be tortured and murdered uh, at numbers the likes of which nobody can imagine. Um, we all saw what we're seeing now in Bucha. It's going to get much worse when we uncover the war crimes in Mariupol. It's going to be heart-wrenching to see. And we have the ability to stop that now. If we show the courage and make these tough decisions. Is there anything else that you might be able to share with us that you have learned behind closed doors about the massacre in Bucha that, that we've seen uh, photos of, pretty graphic photos these past few days? It is, it is just awful. It's unspeakable. Um, they are worse than ISIS. I will say that. I mean, that, that is how bad the, the Russians are conducting themselves right now, which is why I believe they should be labeled, as does Marcy Kaptur, um, you know, my, my co-lead, uh, Democrat colleague from Ohio. She agrees that we ought to designate Vladimir Putin's regime as a state sponsor of terrorism. There are, are economic consequences to that designation. Um, but it's going to get it's going to get worse. And it pains me to say that, uh, Jacqueline, I lived in Ukraine. My last uh, FBI assignment as an FBI agent before I came to Congress was in Ukraine. I lived there. Those are my friends. Uh, uh, Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, is a dear friend of mine. And he's gone from being an administrator uh, of a city of four million to wearing Kevlar body armor, uh, taking up weapons and leading, you know, a civilian army right now. Um, and these Russians are targeting children. They're targeting women. They bombed a children's cancer hospital. They bombed a maternity ward. They bombed shelters, schools that were marked children inside. It doesn't get any worse than this. And, you know, I, I wish that people would um, stop focusing so much on the NATO, non-NATO distinction. Um, I don't think that's an appropriate distinction to be drawing here. NATO applies to our legal obligations under Article 5. And by the way, that's not even clearly defined because it's not clearly defined whether a cyber attack, for example, would invoke Article 5. It's not clearly defined whether a chemical attack in Lviv that migrates over the Polish border, whether that invokes Article 5. But that's only the legal analysis. Then we have the moral obligation. When does our moral obligation kick in? For me, that line has already been crossed. And it's very hard for people to reconcile, as it should be, how tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians could die. But if one step is taken over the Romanian border and one Romanian is killed, the full force of 30 nations military will come to bear. People have a hard time reconciling that and they should because the NATO and non-NATO distinctions should not be all or nothing. And I, I imagine you've been in touch with the mayor of Kiev uh, throughout this conflict. What has he communicated to you that, that they need from their end? Uh, they need uh, MiG-29s, which Poland has exportable inventory of that they're willing to give. Uh, they need TB2 drones, which Turkey has exportable inventory of, they're willing to give. And they need the S-300 surface terror missiles, which Bulgaria, Croatia, Slovakia, and Romania have exportable inventory of, they're willing to give. 
And as far as the U.S. Um, uh, production, uh, the the Switchblade 300 drones are helpful, uh, but the Switchblade 600s are the only ones that can carry a Javelin warhead that can penetrate a tank. Um, that's why they need that. The Stingers um, are more anti-helicopter than they are anti-aircraft. They're capped out at 10,000 feet. So they can catch a, an airplane on takeoff and landing, but not an airplane in flight, which is why they need the surface-to-air um, technology. And I think it's important to note, Jacqueline, uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky is not asking for NATO boots on the ground. He's not asking for U.S. technology, such as um, the Patriot system or Israeli technology, such as the Iron Dome system. He's asking for Soviet technology so that their soldiers can use it. There is no reason, no reason why we should not be giving them every last piece of equipment that they're asking for. Although, why not use the Iron Dome system? What's been the holdup there about having Israel uh, bring that to Ukraine th throughout this conflict? Well, the, the concern there is uh, technology falling into the wrong hands. Obviously, we saw that with disastrous consequences in Afghanistan. So if a Patriot battery um, were to be um, taken by the Russians, that would obviously pose a national security threat to the United States. So I can at least understand that argument. But what I cannot understand is providing MiG-29s, TB-2 drones, S-300 surface-to-air missiles, all Soviet technology that would be uh, deployed by Ukrainian soldiers. There is no reason why they should not be getting that. There's no reason why they can't be provided with tanks, as Volodymyr Zelensky has asked, because that would allow them to both create and enforce their own no-fly zone. That would allow for a humanitarian corridor to get from the south and the eastern parts of Ukraine out through the, the Lviv corridor and into Poland safely. Um, they have not yet gotten those items, at least not enough of them. And Congressman, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said that this war is likely to last years. Does Ukraine have the wherewithal right now to survive a protracted conflict with Russia? And, and do you think that that time frame should change the thinking of policymakers in the U.S.? I think if we provide Ukraine with what they're asking for, Ukraine can fight and win this conflict. I do believe that. Uh, the Ukrainian spirit is through the roof. Uh, they are, if the Russians think that they're gonna break the will of the Ukrainian people by committing these atrocities, and by the way, that's the intent behind Russia's moves right now, they are sorely mistaken. Uh, I, lived I lived in Ukraine, I lived alongside of these people. They have more heart and more soul than any Russian soldier could ever dream to have. Uh, and they are fighting for what's right. They're fighting for their country. They're fighting for their families. And they're a young democracy. They're only 30 years old, but they've been living free for 30 years. And close to half of the population of Ukraine was born after 1991, after they won their independence. They know little of and want no part of Kremlin rule. And that's what Vladimir Putin severely miscalculated. Um, he has no sustainable political endgame here. Uh, he made a colossal mistake of invading Ukraine. He will never accomplish his ultimate objective of taking Ukraine and holding Ukraine. That is not in the cards at all. So what he's resorted to is complete and total devastation and genocide. And the West, the United States, the EU, everybody, every freedom-loving nation across the globe cannot sit back and watch this happen because it's wrong on a human and a moral level. And secondly, he will not stop Ukraine. Vladimir Putin will not stop until he is stopped.
And what are you hearing about the time frame of this conflict? Uh, you know, just last month, we had reported that uh, a briefing delivered to, to the House, a classified briefing, showed that an insurgency or um, the taking of Kyiv could happen in two to three weeks. And obviously, that hasn't panned out. Well, yes. Yeah, so I'm on the House Intelligence Committee. We were getting briefed starting back in September of this scenario. And I will tell you the first time we got briefed uh, about the likely invasion of, of Ukraine, our question was, well, what exactly does that mean? Are you talking about Donbass? Are you talking about migrating further uh, in the south, migrating up from Crimea? Um, and when they said Kiev, that they were going to seek to take the, the capital of Kiev and have the capability of doing it, Within a matter of days, we all almost collectively fell off our chairs. The, the, the thought was so unfathomable. Um, and yes, that was the intelligence. But the fact that they failed, I think, speaks to two things. Number one, they underestimated the will uh, of the Ukrainian people significantly. And second, uh, the Russian military is not nearly what people thought it was. Um, they have always had logistical problems. They've always had morale problems. And they're fighting for uh, something that is is an atrocity and completely illegitimate, and they're operating under lies and propaganda. So the combination of all of those factors are leading to the outcome, uh, or at least the, the situation that you're seeing right now as far as their progress or lack thereof. And as a member of House Intel, have you heard anything about Putin's state of mind and uh, whether or not he's still weighing the use of nuclear weapons? We have. It's nothing I can discuss in this format. Um, you know, we're very limited on what we can share uh, from the House Intel Committee. All that is in a skiff. Um, but, you know, soon, uh, much like the administration declassified a lot of the intelligence we were getting, um, and I credit them for doing that, by the way, because it did allow the United States and the world to get out in front of Putin and his bogus justification so that nobody believed it when it actually uh, happened. Um, that was a, a wise decision. It's up to the administration whether they want to declassify the information we're getting about Vladimir Putin's mindset. And I know that you said that you don't think the U.S. should be making uh, the distinction of whether Ukraine is a member of NATO or not. But if they were uh, actually a, a member of the European Union and also NATO, how do you think those memberships would have helped Ukraine in this moment? It would have prevented this war prevented it, not just ended it, it would have prevented the war. Um, Vladimir Putin would not have invaded a NATO country, I don't believe. Uh, Ukraine is, he considers the breadbasket of what he calls motherland Russia. Um, and I think it would have prevented it. That's precisely why uh, all the work that I did in Ukraine as an FBI agent was helping them meet their NATO uh, metrics. They desperately want to be a part of the West. They desperately want to be a part of EU. That's what led to the Euromaidan revolution and the ouster of Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, the Ukrainian people rose up because Viktor Yanukovych um, went back on his promise of EU membership to the Ukrainian people and ended up siding with Vladimir Putin. And that's when he got exiled. And that's when all that corruption was uncovered. They desperately want this, but they, they were not meeting their NATO metrics, not because of the Ukrainians, but because of the Russians, because of Russian saboteurs that were intentionally sent into Ukraine to infiltrate and, and erode their systems, their judicial system, their law enforcement system, their parliament and RADA, and their financial networks, because you, uh, Russia's biggest fear was that Ukraine would ultimately meet the metrics, and they were doing everything they could to prevent them from doing so. 
And you recently had a virtual meeting with President Zelensky last month when you were visiting the Ukrainian-Poland border. How did you think he was holding up? He's remarkable. Uh, he is a modern-day Churchill. He's an inspiration to all of us. He's an inspiration to me. He should be an inspiration to anybody, whether you're in government or, or out of government. Uh, this is a man who is willing to stay in his country and die for his country. He's willing to die for people he doesn't even know. Uh, that is heroism at its best. And we all ought to take a page out of this man's book. And I will tell you when, um, you know, we first met him when I was over there and, you know, right after he got elected, we didn't really know much about him. We didn't know because you never know, um, you know, what who's behind some of these leaders and what their motivations are, what their plans are. Uh, but we now know who Volodymyr Zelensky is. Uh, he is making Ukraine so proud right now. He's putting Ukraine on the map across the globe. And if anybody questions whether Ukraine is worthy of NATO membership, if anybody was questioning their military might and whether they meet their military metrics for NATO membership, my goodness, I hope that their perspective has completely changed based on what they're witnessing right now. And, and during your visit to Poland, you saw firsthand the human toll of the refugee crisis. The, the United Nations High Command on Refugees now estimates that approximately 10 million people have fled their homes. What more can be done by the U.S. in particular to help these people now? I know the administration recently expedited visas for people who have family in the U.S., but uh, they, the, the administration still hasn't released a broader number of refugees that they're willing to take here. Uh, one of the most heartbreaking uh, scenes that I've ever witnessed that is forever seared into my brain is um, on the Ukrainian side of the Ukrainian-Poland border, uh, watching the men age 18 to 60. They're not permitted to leave the country. They're not permitted to cross the border. And to their credit, they wanted to stay and fight for their country, um, dropping off their elderly parents, their spouses, their children, hugging them and kissing them goodbye, potentially for the last time, uh, was one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever had to witness. Um, there are approximately 12 to 15 Ukrainian men between ages 18 and 60 that are outnumbered 10 to 1 by the Russian military, completely outmatched technologically, and they know what likely awaits them, and yet they're willing to go back and fight. What can we be doing? I'll give them and their, their military the equipment, the, the air defense system specifically, to allow them to create and enforce their own no-fly zone, which will allow these millions of other people, by the way, that are still trapped. Not everybody's able to migrate uh, through the Western Carter, through Lviv and into Poland or Romania. Uh, they're blocked. Many of these towns are completely encircled by Russian troops still. Um, if, we, if we give them the air defense systems that they need, they can create a humanitarian corridor um, that we can then reinforce uh, from the outside and allow these people a safe passage. That's what we need to be doing right now. How long do you think it'll be before some of these families who have been separated uh, will be able to be reunited in, in Ukraine. God only knows. I mean, a lot of that's going to depend on how long this war goes on, which is why we need to seek to resolve this quickly. Um, you know, the men are, are under draft mode right now, 18 to 60. If you're a male in Ukraine, you are not permitted to leave the country. So you can imagine how many families are separated right now. Um, and the, the trauma that these children are going through, Jacqueline, heartbreaking. Uh, permanent, permanent emotional scarring, uh, having to, to leave their father uh, or their, or their uh, you know, for the women that are leaving their husbands or their sons behind. Um, 
it, it's just heartbreaking. And, and to think that in, on a planet where over 8 billion people reside, that one person, one, can be causing all this pain and destruction and devastating is just unfathomable. And I want to get to a question from one of our viewers on this topic. Victoria Lenat from Virginia wants to know if Bucks County is going to host refugees. I would love for that to happen. Uh, I will push every day for that to happen. Uh, the United States of America needs to do our part to accept it with open, loving arms all Ukrainian refugees. Uh, Poland has been heroic uh, and very generous thus far. Poland cannot handle this 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 influx on their own. They just can't. So we need to work with the EU, and every country's got to do their part um, to accept Ukrainian refugees. Uh, and I, Bucks County, absolutely will. Uh, I'm going to be leading that charge. I will accept the Ukrainian family myself. Um, we will do everything we can to help them. And there does seem to be uh, some bipartisan agreement in Congress about taking measures to punish Russia. You worked with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin on the Ban Russian Energy Imports Act. But what else should Congress be doing to damage the Russian energy sector? We have to have an embargo. Uh, so it's one thing for the United States to ban Russian imports. We don't get that much, but it's important that we did that. Uh, the EU, 40% of the EU's energy comes from Russia, 50% of Germany's energy comes from Russia. We have to, if we want to tighten the noose around the Russian economy, there can't be any escape hatches. When we remove banks from the SWIFT banking system, it ought to be all the banks, not some of the banks. We need to sanction all the financial institutions. We ought to uh, eliminate any ability for uh, any Russian investment by any country anywhere around the world. And if they do, they need to be marked as a uh, as a co-conspirator and complicit with the Russian uh, war machine that's going on right now. That is the only way to do this. We can't be too cute by half by saying, well, we'll, we'll sanction some industries and not the other. You got to completely tighten the noose on their economy. That is how you get the Russian government to collapse. But if we're going to sit here and say, well, it might have too much of a negative impact on our economy, that's a choice that some of these countries are making. I believe they're making it at their own peril because it's that same precise thinking that got them in, into the situation to begin with. Countries like Germany, uh, it was reported yesterday um, that the EU was prepared to fully embargo Russian oil exports. Um, Germany uh, pushed back on that and ultimately killed that because so much of their energy sources come from Russia. That was a bad decision Germany made. Now, I wish they'd be uh, willing to, to, to uh, shift course on that. Um, and that's another thing we're going to be pushing for. And I want to get back quickly to your personal story. You've said uh, that you lived in Ukraine during your time as an FBI agent and that Ukrainians are your friends. Do you think Putin has underestimated the resolve of the kinds of Ukrainian people that you know? Of course he has. But everything inside Vladimir Putin's brain is a lie. It's prop he's, he's drowning in his own propaganda. Um, his people around him are not giving him an honest assessment. Um, Vladimir Putin's become increasingly isolated, um, particularly starting with the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, he's developed a, you know, odd relationship, uh, with the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Uh, he's not of sound mind, uh, right now. Um, and when you have a, a person that was already a problem to begin with, starting to suffer from, uh, psychological and emotional deterioration, who also has nuclear weapons, who has no regard for human life, that's a dangerous combination. Um, but we got to figure out how we best deal with that and sitting back and allowing Vladimir Putin to decide what's provocative and what isn't, 
um, and being afraid to go all the way on sanctions is not the path forward here. Um, so that's what I've been urging my colleagues. And I want to reemphasize, we have a huge, huge bipartisan block in both chambers that, that, are, that are all pushing for the same thing. Um, the holdup currently has been at the administration, um, several of the secretaries, as well as the president, to not go all the way. Uh, a lot of things they've done have been very, very helpful, but there's so much more we can be doing because every day we wait, every day we wait, it's costing Ukrainian lives. And have you gotten intel that that supports the claim you just made of, of Putin experiencing psychological and emotional deterioration? Uh, I'll leave that to the administration on declassifying any details on that. Uh, and I'm going to squeeze in one political question before we wrap up today, unfortunately. But you won your election for a third term in 2020 after being challenged in a primary by a, sta by a staunch Donald Trump supporter. What role do you want to see the former president play in your party in 2022 midterms coming up in November? That's that's up to the, the former president to decide what he what role he wants to play. Um, I believe my job as a representative um, and I wish everybody took this perspective is you have to represent an entirety of a district, not just people that think a certain way or, or, or su support or oppose uh, a certain individual or group, but I represent close to 800,000 people. And a lot of them think very differently on a lot of these issues. And some I agree with, some I don't, but the only way the system works is if you, when you come to the floor of the house, that you're representing to the best of your ability, the, the views, the, the consensus of all of them. Um, now, whether it's, you know, the former president, whether it's, you know, any former president, any former elected official, um, how much they want to be engaged is up to them. Um, how people respond to that is up to them. I don't believe in, you know, blanket, you know, approvals or disapprovals of, of any of these individuals. There's, there's good and bad in everyone. Um, so there's good ideas and bad ideas coming out of everybody. Um, our job and my job is the co-chair of the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus. It's a caucus of 58 members, 29 Democrats, 29 Republicans. We believe in building bridges and not driving wedges. And anytime we're focusing on, you know, any of these former presidents, um, including our current president, and, and making everything a referendum on that one individual, that is not what this job is about. Um, this president, our previous president, the president before him, um, all had good ideas and bad ideas. That's what we do. We call balls and strikes on their ideas, not a referendum on them as human beings. Unfortunately, we're all out of time. We're going to have to leave it here. But thanks so much for joining us, Congressman. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day. You'll have to come back and give us an update soon. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.